Hello, everybody. Just a quick disclaimer before this week's episode. As you know, we've been recording our episodes remotely lately due to the COVID-19 pandemic, so please excuse the slight dip in audio quality. I also wanted to give a shout out to all the nurses, doctors, and medical professionals working every day to save lives. Y'all are the real heroes, and we love you. And now, here's the show. From the beautiful city of West Hollywood, we bring you Film Forward, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. Hey, hey, welcome to Film Forward, everybody, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. Happy holidays. Hope everybody is staying safe. Hanging in there. What a year it has been. And today we have another one of our patented Gimme Three episodes. I originally had planned to do a Gimme Three episode dedicated to Christmas movies, but it felt a little bit like ignoring the elephant in the room. So instead, what we're doing is Gimme Three films that embody the year 2020, an unprecedented year, obviously, that has filled us all with. Stress, pain, I mean, pretty much every emotion known to man. Helping me out with this tall task is Mr. David Chu, director, writer, cinephile, film lover, and close friend of the festival. David, thank you for joining us once again here on Film Forward. Thank you for having me. This was It was so much fun last time, so I obviously jumped at the chance to part of this conversation again. So much fun that I invited you back for the most depressing I know, uh, discussion of all time. <laughs> well, I should um, tell you, I was a history. I didn't study film in college. I studied in graduate school. I was a history major, as you might glean from you know the way I talked in the last podcast. And I've always been fascinated with the way ordinary people experience extraordinary events. Yeah. Um, so this topic was actually it was depressing. I'm not going to deny this has been a tough year, but I jumped at the chance to be a part of it because it's just something that endlessly fascinates me. Absolutely. And I mean, that's that's kind of why I wanted to have this discussion instead of the Christmas movies, because Christmas movies we can do for years to come. But this was we're living through history and, and it's yeah. it's important to acknowledge it. It's important to uh, dissect it. And, you know, obviously today for our listeners, we're going to be touching on some heavy things, some heavy themes. I'm not going to. We're not going to provide all the answers, or maybe David is. I sure is not. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody have the? I mean, man, but, um, like, what is twenty twenty one going to look like? Is something I can't even answer. So, yeah, that's, on, you know, for sure. What um, this year? Yeah. What I'm hoping we can provide is maybe some some perspective, some insight, you know, some history. Hopefully, by the end, some hope. And if nothing else, some fucking good movies for our listeners to watch. I'm really excited to talk about the films you've brought, the films I've brought. I think we've got an eclectic mix of films that are just really not only speak to 2020, but they just they're just really awesome flicks. Yeah. And and you know what? Stay home, watch these movies, order takeout from your favorite restaurant or uh, skip that fa- large family gathering and, and right. uh, go watch some <laughs> movies and you're doing your part to... <laughs> to help us get the numbers down. So you're not Absolutely. only, you know, he's a great way to pass that time. Yeah. You're by watching these movies, you're, you're helping save the world. That's, you're helping that's, save the world. Yeah, absolutely. So without further ado, here we go. Movies that embody 2020. Give me three. 
And David, you're going to start us off here. Your first one, sir. So my first one came out actually pretty recently in 2019. It is by Lauren Greenfield, who happens to be a member of my synagogue, but just not and that's not why it's not one of the element of favoritism. I've been a fan of Lauren Greenfield ever since I saw a film of hers called The Queen of Versailles, mm-hmm. which I felt perfectly encapsulated this moment of time of in the wake of the financial crash and, and, and you know, the conspicuous consumption and where we were as a country and identity. And she's always examined power and privilege. Generation Wealth, I think, is another one I've loved. And other work she started as a photojournalist. I was just always excited to see anything new by her. And she had a film that came out last year about Amelda Marcos, who was the wife of uh, Ferdinand Marcos, an infamous dictator in the Philippines. And there's almost no way, I don't know if you're a spoiler-free podcast, I feel like there's almost no way to discuss this movie without some spoilers. And the spoilers might be just literally by reading a Wikipedia page about her. So like, uh, first of all, I would just advise, stop it, pause the podcast, (laughs) go watch the movie, and then come back. Because uh, as I told Nick, watch it without Googling anything about it. It's one of those documentaries that it just has these twists and turns. You don't know where it's going. And the less you know, almost, the more enjoyable the ride is going to be and scary. I mean, honestly, Mm -hmm. we picked a dark collection of movies. It was a dark year. This is one of the scariest, darkest movies. It's scarier than any horror movie I've ever seen because it's real. It left me chills and about, because it's not just about the Philippines, in my opinion. It's about, oh yeah, it's about this moment in time. You know, it feels like we are in a moment in history where authoritarianism, fascism, the collapse of democracy is something very real and very tangible in a way that was unthinkable not very long ago. And uh, one of the things I think that sticks with you about this film is how insidiously it can creep up on you so that even when you thought you won, you can actually turn around and discover that you've lost. And that's really chilling. Yeah, this film, The Kingmaker, it really knocked me on my ass, man. (laughs) She did an incredible job. Just by the nature of discussing it, we probably will drop some spoilers. So like David said, I do suggest that you pause it, watch it. It's available on Amazon Prime, right? Yeah, I believe so. Amazon Prime. Yeah, Amazon Prime. Check it out. But I have so much respect for the way that they told this story. I mean, it's, it's one thing to be able to tell a story about Amelda Marcos and the Marcos family and to see the history and to see the the history of corruption and totalitarianism and all this stuff. But then to have Imelda Marcos and her family be subjects, interview subjects, and have them give their interviews and tell their side of the story, it just added so much more depth and like intrigue and nuance to the film became more than just about politics. It became like a study of the human mind almost. It was just really jaw-dropping. One of the things I find amazing about Lauren Greenfield as a documentarian is she really gets people to open up about things that like, I just can't imagine. Like they just, her subjects just trust her Mm -hmm. and they're just laying out stuff that I can't believe they're just openly talking (laughs) about it. But she's really good about just getting people to like open up. And I think it's because she's really charted a a documentary about our obsession with power and privilege. And Mm -hmm. I think she understands that everyone from the richest billionaire to somebody living out of a, a shed, you know, a storage unit, which I remember was in one of her documentaries, they want it. Right. They want that's what they they deep down people crave that. 
And and I think in some ways she understands that the interview gives them a chance to kind of show off, right? To be a star. And I think arguably that our current president, you know, as much power and riches he's achieved, (laughs) dubious means in my opinion, um, (laughs) like it's not enough. Right. It's not enough. He he really craves it. And that's why he just keeps putting himself out there. And she understood that was true about Imelda Marcos and her whole family as well. Yeah, it's fascinating and it's super admirable. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, as you mentioned, I think it's a very important film for Americans to watch, even though it takes place in the Philippines, just for us to not get complacent because we've seen this year and we are seeing still currently the threat to democracy in a very real way. And we've never really experienced it in this country, or at least not any time recently. So we don't really know how to react to it. (laughs) And I would like to hope and think that we're going to get through it, you know, over these next couple months. But to say that once we get through these next couple months, that that problem is just going to go away. I think that would be a naive assumption. Yeah. All right. So here's the biggest spoiler, which again, cover your ears. The film starts as what I thought I go, went into the movie thinking it was going to be history, old mm-hmm. history. Cause I thought here's this wife of a dictator. He's out of power. You know, the woman who defeated him and became the president was the uh, times person of the year back in the eight, I think the eighties. So I thought this is just really ancient history from my perspective. Right. And a warning sign and relevant. And I knew if the Philippines had an issue with this guy Duarte, but I, you know, I'm not, I don't follow Filipino politics super closely. So I didn't know any connection to uh, Marcos. And the whole movie, you're starting to think like, oh, she wants to return to power, but it's like sad and deluded. And she's got her like son, she's hoping, but it's not going to work out. You know, it seems like the Eric and we're Don Jr. or Ivanka, like Trump is maybe hoping to get, but doesn't look like it's going to work out. And then at the end, very slowly, you start to realize that, you know, she's played the chess game so well and you didn't see it coming until, oh my gosh, like she's took power again. Yeah. And, and, and you thought like, there's no way everybody remembers. There are people who look at the camera and tell you about brutal oppression and sexual assault under his regime and how terrible a dictator he was. And you think there's no way this country could ever not only become fascist, but go back to the same family right. that was the behind the fascism. And then you realize that Duarte was just a Trojan horse for her and her family. And it's it was sobering because it was like, wow, you cannot let your guard down yeah. at all. And, and the fact that poor, you know, like they, there's some of those shots where they show these like slums and the like tremendous income inequality. And Duarte, it's fueling him. They're, this guy who probably doesn't care about any of these people and and they show you like his crackdowns are hurting those people and yeah. yet he wins their votes and that was a chilling conversation i was reading somewhere that donald trump had performed better in places that had been ravaged by coronavirus right. and people were saying my gosh how is this possible like you know his terrible response to this virus has killed people it was sobering yeah as you said earlier when you introduced the film this was probably one of the scariest movies i've seen in a very long time because <laughs> yeah. i was like oh my god this country, the Philippines I'm talking about, is in dire straits. These are some bad hombres, to quote somebody else, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that are in charge here. Yeah. And hearing Duarte talk, you can draw a lot of similarities between him and, you know, Agent Orange. 
Yeah. Well, he's he's theatrical. Mm-hmm. I mean, that the opening that shot they show of him like rising out of the floor with the like smoke remind me of the elevator yeah. the Trump came. You know, it's like <laughs> very, you know, he's a showman. And and I mean, look, the one I mean, I don't think Trump handled the coronavirus very well, but I I get that he's an entertainer and I think that is a skill that he has and oh, that's yeah. very dangerous. I mean, mm-hmm. because that's from which demagogues are made are the the people who really understand the theatricality of it. And it doesn't offer any easy answers. It doesn't leave you feeling like, well, the good guys are destined to win. Somebody said, I remember reading somewhere, I think it was John Dean in his book, The Authoritarian Nightmare. John Dean turned under Nixon, interestingly enough, but he's very critical of Trump and has sort of done a bit of a 180 on his party. And he argues that we will never be able to let our guard down for a long time after this, even if Trump is out of office. And that's what this shows, is you can't let your guard down for a moment. You can't put your goggles on, the rose-colored glasses on, and go back to a more innocent time because you realize that was just an illusion. It really was. And that's how we got in this position in the first place. Yeah. The Kingmaker it is a great reminder of that. And besides it being a fantastic history lesson and a microscope on politics abroad and here, it is a incredibly made documentary. So I implore you all to check it out. It is available on Amazon Prime. The Kingmaker by Laura Greenfield. Excellent first choice, David. Excellent first choice. Thank you. To go along with the political upheaval, there's been a lot of comparisons made 2020 and 1968 because I think both years were filled with so much dysfunction and change and tragedy. Of course, I was not alive then, but uh, this year I've been doing a lot of research on that year. I've been reading a lot of Hunter S. Thompson. I've been you know, just trying to consume as much from 1968 as possible just to, I don't know, give me some perspective or understand what we're going through a little bit more. And Medium Cool, I think, is the most 1968 movie I've ever seen. And also possibly one of the most 2020 movies (laughs) I've ever seen. It is by Haskell Wexler, who is better known as a very famous cinematographer in the heat of the night, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, so many classic films he's DP, but this was his directorial debut. And it is a wallop of a movie. He originally set out to make a slightly different movie, but he, being from Chicago, he kind of felt the tensions building in Chicago with the civil rights movement going on and these intense protests about the Vietnam War. So he decided to change his film concept. He wrote Medium Cool and made this film, which is about a lot of things, but you know, it's about media manipulation and how the media manipulates people, how fear is portrayed through media and what it, the repercussions of fear and what they can do. It stars Robert Forrester, who's one of my favorite actors of all time. He plays a news cameraman who mind is blown when he finds out the FBI is like taking his film reels from the news station that he works at just to like check up on the people that he's interviewing because he's, you know, getting in the thick of it, which by the way, that actually happened in the late 60s and probably thereafter, but I cannot confirm that, but I can confirm that it did happen in the late 60s in Chicago. So the fascinating thing to me about this film is that it blends documentary and narrative. Wexler has created these fictional characters, but he's making it during, in the midst of these protests, these very famous speeches, this political upheaval, and it kind of climaxes, spoiler alert, 
it climaxes around the 1968 Chicago Democratic National Convention, which, you know, infamously erupted in chaos. So you have his fictional characters roaming around in the middle of an actual police riot. <laughs> and it's just jaw-dropping to watch. I've never seen anything like it. I saw this movie for the first time a few years ago at the New Beverly, and it just blew my fucking hair back. And haven't not thought about this movie for more than a week. And it's just really, really stuck with me. And when I thought of this concept, this was one of the movies that kind of birthed the concept of this uh, film forward episode. So I was just thinking, can you imagine today trying to go to like an insurance underwriter in on a Hollywood studio film? Say, <laughs> so we're going to send our lead actress in the middle of a riot. <laughs> Dude, so this movie was was released by Paramount Pictures. A major studio wouldn't touch this movie with a 10-foot pole, you know, these days. Like, yeah. it's just amazing to me that this movie was released by a major studio because it is so raw, yeah. so political, so in-your-face. You know what I find interesting, and spoiler alert, the, the part where he discovers the FBI is spying on the footage happens like an hour into the movie. Like, yeah. I mean, that's like what would be the inciting incident in a, a traditional Hollywood screenplay like i mean yeah. it's interesting i remember um talking with somebody about the tv show mad men and they said oh i like the beginning part when it was more cool you know advertising age but it just kind of got like weird and and kind of like the whole thing was just kind of coming apart at the last couple of seasons and i said oh i think that's what the, it was supposed to be like it starts out in 1960 <laughs> and becomes 1968 and that's right. like how it was going and i and i thought about that with this film where I thought like the film, like the first hour of the film, you're just like, what is going on in this? Yeah. Like, who are these? Like, who is this kid? And like, why, you know, there's a kid in the movie and then his mom. And it turns out the mom is going to have a budding romance with the cameraman. But like, at first you're like, I don't understand what these two stories have to do with each other. And they're keep cutting back and forth between them. And so there's a sort of disorientation, mm -hmm. which again, it's such a, I mean, there's no, it would have been like zero patience for it in a, in yeah. a studio <laughs> film. And, and, and me, maybe it's a kind of the product that can only happen seeing at the New Beverly. You buy a ticket, you go into a theater and you're sort of a bit more committed, right? Yeah. It's not like right. you put it on Netflix. And then if you're not like, you don't see where it's going in 20 minutes, you're like, click, I'll see something else on my queue. Like you totally. sort of, it, it's sort of a function of an, an age when you're like, I guess I'm along for this ride. And the thing I find fascinating is I don't think the characters even know what they're in the middle of. The lead actress, she wanders into, like you said, the famous Chicago riots. We're to say spoiler alert for something that happened like 50 years ago. Right. Yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> but it's true. It's like the Kingmaker. It's like it already happened, but it's like yeah. you don't know it. It's like a huge spoiler. Or the fact that like he, the cameraman, you know, he's not a very political guy initially, it seems like. He's just here to tell a great story. The opening scene is him just like, kind of it, it it reminded me of this great film i saw called nightcrawler where he's just getting like footage of a car crash because he knows totally it nightcrawler totally yeah. nightcrawler and and he's like kind of amoral right like and then just finds himself and, and it's not even that he gets more political he just gets sucked into this web of politics and i saw you know it's part of the criterion collection there was an essay on it that was saying like there's a scene even when he goes into this woman's apartment and she has a bobby kennedy poster and it's like it argued that like this, what it shows is politics is inescapable. Yeah. And it feels like literally she gets sucked into this this event at the end. Like it's like, and that, that's very 2020, right? Like I, there's so many people I know who aren't political who feel like they still can't escape politics right now. It was completely inescapable, especially this year, because 
we had no escape. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. We were all trapped home. It was inescapable then and inescapable today. And yeah, you you mentioned that that opening scene where he films a uh, injured or dead body of a car crash, gets the footage, and then calls the paramedics. Right. Yeah. Very right. nightcrawler. <laughs> Very nightcrawler. But also goes to show you just, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. Motif has not changed 40-odd years removed. Yeah, I think I that's what I found the most weird about it was how it sort of felt like it was could be today, right? It felt like mm-hmm. it was it was capturing our zeitgeist as well as this zeitgeist and the sense of the world, the world coming apart at the seams. His indifference in the beginning was was troubling, but troubling in a way that was disturbing, but in a way that feels very familiar. I mean, there's yeah. there's a lot of people, I mean, you know, it's hard to escape in this year that it, it feels like there's large swaths of this country that just doesn't care about how what happens to other people in the, their fellow citizens. Like, just they don't care yeah. if they get the virus or whatever. There's a sense that there's like a moral rot going on as well as a political rot. And it's really hard to figure out exactly where that came from. There's a scene that's really powerful where the young boy says, oh, I went to, to school, and what do you do? It's like, oh, the teacher just wheels out a TV, and like, oh, well, educational TV is good. It's like, no, I just, we just watch whatever. And you're just like, wait, is that happening? Like, what? Right. Like, that's terrible. That's like, what's true. going on? Yeah. You know, like, and this is, again, this is like decades ago. This is yeah. in 1969, this song came out. So like, it's just a sense that like somehow everything has gone wrong and you're not really sure why and where did it start? Yeah. Why? Where did it happen? How do we fix it? Because it's not nostalgic. Like there's the scene no. where where the father in West Virginia, the, the boy is from West Virginia as his wife. And there's a scene where it's a flashback. His father takes him out. And at first you're like, oh, yeah, they're bonding. They're shooting, you know, bottles. They're shooting a Jim Beam bottle, which is interesting. <laughs> but then the father is giving this story about how you have to like dominate women and and women are, you know, you own her, but she can never own you. And you're like, well, uh, I don't think the return, you know, it's just make America great again. A return to just what it used to be because it kind of was arguing like it wasn't that wasn't particularly good. Right. Like that's very patriarchal and awful. Right. But it also doesn't feel like we're necessarily entering a better age. It's not like it, it's very different from the Obama era. Like it's all going to get better in the march of progress. And it's it's the sense of like this real confusion and chaos uh, it permeates this film. And then just knowing how that year ended after the movie ends, you know, Nixon, <laughs> Nixon gets elected and it's gets just, elected. you know, a denouement of shit, if you will. Yeah. There's one more scene I want to talk about before we move on that kind of leads into our next two films, but there's a scene where Robert Forrester's character goes into a Black Panther meeting, essentially a Black political activist's He's trying to do a story on a man who's getting hassled by the police because he returned money that he found. But he should be a hero, but he's getting hassled. He should be a hero, but he's but he's getting yeah. hassled by the police yeah. and they're questioning why did he return this money. Wexler, the director, does this documentary type footage interviewing these political activists. And there's as much truth in that scene as you'll see in any major motion picture in the last 20 years. Oh, yeah. You have these these people just talking literally directly into the camera. They're talking to Robert Forrester's character, but they're talking to us, the audience, explaining why and how the media is partially responsible for the degradation of the Black American. It will knock you right in the face. And it is, it yeah, is my a, favorite. a wall of truth. 
It has my favorite line in the movie, which is, you came here with 15 minutes of black sensibility. Right. You came down here to shoot 15 minutes of what it's taken 300 years to develop. Right. It's got this great metaphor. I mean, it's beautifully artistic, right? It's because it's about a cameraman and develop, developing film. There's an incredible metaphor, but like, wow. Like, what a gut punch. Because it's true. Even when we were talking about the racial reckoning, there was a sense that people were just dabbling in a story. You're getting the 15, you're getting the Cliff Notes version. The media, various ways people were doing it, were, were giving the kind of the Cliff Notes version. Because like, oh, we want to learn about this, but not too much. We don't really want to. We want to be able to walk away from it when it's, when it's convenient. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things I found really fascinating about this film was how bluntly it showed poverty. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, you know, both the white working class, which has been a lot of conversation, but also poverty among communities of color in Chicago. And even I feel like when you see poverty in not just movies of that time period, but even today, it's it's still somewhat glamorized. Like I think, you know, like I love the West Side Story, but it's, it's still really it's Hollywood poverty. It's still Hollywood poverty. Like their <laughs> houses are like way bigger than anything anybody would be able to have. Yeah. <laughs> They're still dressed beautifully and they're made up. It's not like that at all. And I thought like, Usually that's really an uncomfortable thing that people shy away from. Just being honest that like there are parts of this country that are what we would think of as like a third world country. You know? Yeah, for sure. Man, I could talk about this movie for another three days, but we must, uh, yeah, <laughs> we must yeah. move on. Medium cool. I'm glad you liked it, David. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. I was glad to share it with you. I hope you guys all check it out. It's not currently available for streaming, unfortunately, but there is a wonderful Criterion Collection Blu-ray edition that is out and it is it is worth it. For God's sakes, if you buy this movie, I will pay for it myself. That's how much I love this movie and how much I want you to watch it. Send me the receipt and I will pay for it. I will also add, by the way, um, if you have a little bit of time on your hands, we had a bit of a deadline filming this podcast. You can go to the L.A. Public Library, which is open for curbside pickup, and you can get a copy and support your local library. Which Ooh, is um, even better. Go buy the movie. But also, if you want to check it out without, you know, much of a financial commitment, go support your local library. Your local library has an amazing collection of films or something like Cinephile Video or, or you know, any of those other little indie video rental places which are still struggling to survive in this time period and our cultural treasuries. Thank you for calling that out, David. I appreciate your your shout outs to the to the folk that need it. Yeah. It's a tough time. Let's hope they make it through. Tough time. Okay. Your second choice, Mr. David, coming off of Medium Cool, we are going into Well, it's funny that we had a documentary and a film that's like half documentary and half fiction. And now we're back to another documentary. But I guess it's to show that like sometimes you can't really beat the truth. Um, And so this is a documentary called Whose Streets? Um, It's a documentary about Ferguson. It was, you know, it's interesting. We think of the racial reckoning and the riots and the protests, all of these things of being a 2020 phenomenon. But you know, it's been going on for a while, as Medium Cool showed. And really, the, one of the biggest galvanizing moments in our country was Ferguson in 2015, yeah. which happened under Obama. It is really remarkable, again, because it's really great to piggyback off of Medium Cool because there's so much power in who controls the camera, mm-hmm. right? In Medium Cool, like he's the cameraman. And, and that's the accusation. What do you see? You're here, sitting here coming in with your camera and you're controlling it, you're editing it, you're controlling what we see. Well, now everybody has a camera. And that's why we're suddenly seeing more incidents of police brutality. That's why it's harder to spin the narrative. And what Whose Streets does is it uses a lot of cell phone footage. It takes you right 
there to the point of view of the people on the streets, the protesters, the activists, the ordinary citizens. And so you get the sense that it's just cutting through any media narrative, right? When I heard about Ferguson, the media narrative that was first coming to me was like there were these riots, and that was what the focus on. Oh, they burned a CVS. Right. Oh, horrible. They burned the CVS. And, you know, I'm, don't burn CVSs. I'm certainly not saying that. But, like, that was what the focus was on. And then you watch this and you're like, wait a minute. That is not the story of what was happening here. But yeah. that story is not being told. There are candlelight vigils, people protesting and marching. And then the police come in. Somebody at one point says it's like an invading army. They compare it to Iraq. They right. come in in these heavily armored vehicles and this riot gear. And it's not really clear that, like, anybody's doing anything particularly violent, but the response is so overwhelming and so militarized. And then it does start to escalate and get They show up with tanks. They show up in literal tanks. Literal tanks for American citizens. It's not like this is happening overseas. And that's an interesting question, too. The whole idea of what it means to be doing this overseas. We certainly have gone through this with Iraq Mm -hmm. um, and other countries that, you know, we're sending in this heavily militarized force into. But this is happening into the middle of the country, of this country. Right. It's stunning to watch. And you can only see it because you're seeing it from the point of view of ordinary people beautifully woven together with just footage shot by regular folks. Yeah, the uh, the filmmakers did a really remarkable job piecing all of this together and taking so many people's different footage and, and making it all feel cohesive to tell this story in a very... I'm saying literal way in not in a mad way, but just to kind of give you a here's what happened. Then this happened. Then this happened. It's a top to bottom telling of uh, what happened in Ferguson in a way that you're not really going to find anywhere else, or at least I couldn't find anywhere else. One of the things that was, as you mentioned, like comparing it to other countries, I recently watched a short documentary called Do Not Split. And we had we had the filmmaker here on the podcast on Film Forward. And that that documentary was about the protests in Hong Kong against the Chinese communist regime. And besides the fact that one's in Ferguson and and one's in Hong Kong, there is so little difference between the footage, like the tactics used by the Chinese government and the tactics used by these like local police forces were so horrifyingly similar. I was like, what are we doing? (laughs) Like, it's 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 insane because. American citizens, sometimes we like to look at other countries and say like, oh, look what they're doing to their citizens. Like, you know, the Chinese government, you know, a lack of democracy, you know, they're beating these citizens who are fighting for democracy. It's like these people are fighting for their lives here in this country. And the same thing is happening to them. Yeah. You know, it it really made me ask hard questions because I saw this during the Trump era, even though it documents era events in the Obama era. We talk about you know, the sudden emergence of fascism. But the interesting thing it makes you realize is for some people, some communities, they've always been living in what can feel like a a hostile occupation and what can Mm -hmm. feel like an oppressive state. I was reading, I just read recently, I started reading this book, The Republic for Which It Stands, which is about the last half of the 19th century. And it talks about reconstruction. And like in the first election after the Civil War, after African-Americans had the right to vote, local whites 
were going and murdering them in some cases for trying to vote, were forcing people to go and, and said, if you don't vote for our people who you know want to put you back in chains and everything but name, and you realize, oh, wow, like there are places where it's been like a totalitarian oppression yeah. long before this. You know, it's not a question of could America slip into authoritarianism for some people. It it's been that. There. It's yeah. been there. It's been there. Yeah, all year we've been saying, you know, like, uh, oh, the country's broken, the country's broken. And I'm not saying I disagree with that, but yeah, you bring up a good point. For black and brown people, you know, it's, for some, it's never not been broken. Right, yeah. When you think about, like, what a struggle. People talking about this, I think it was, you know, the anniversary of women getting the right to vote, and there was that asterisk saying, well, we mean white women. Yeah. Because there's, you know, black women, you know, still couldn't vote in many places until much decades later. And that's a form, I mean, that is totalitarianism. That is a, you know, that is not democratic in any way, shape or form. Absolutely. So the last thing I'll say about this film, there were so many powerful and inspiring quotes from these activists. And I'm not going to read them because I, coming from my mouth here speaking into a microphone at home. It doesn't hold the weight. You should all go watch this film. The one thing that stuck with me was one line, especially, this is not your father's civil rights movement. Yeah, yeah. And I just got chills because I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, right, this is a new generation. And you know what? You're maybe not going to agree with some of their tactics. Some of their slogans might make you uncomfortable. We might, you know, we're having a debate right now about defund the police as a slogan or whatever. But you know what? The history of civil rights activists has never been to make people feel comfortable. No. It's it's to get the boot off their neck and to make us catalyze our whole country for change. Absolutely. A lot of wisdom and a lot of passion comes from this film. And uh, I think it should be championed. I Surprisingly, I, I had no idea this, this film existed until you uh, brought it to my attention, which is very surprising because it is so well-made and so gripping and heartbreaking and powerful. But it does, you know, by the end of it, I did feel empowered as a person of color and I felt uh, inspired to uh, to continue the fight because, you know, we kind of hate to say it. It feels like, you know, this was a, a powerful conversation that we were having earlier this year, but then, you know, uh, what happened? Uh, the election news came and we get quiet again and yeah. nothing's changed. You know, nothing real has happened. It was a good watch because it was uh, it was a sobering reminder that the fight must continue. The youth of so many of these activists really struck me and it suddenly made me think like, oh, right, like this is our generation's turn. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of like watching the Parkland kids or Greta Thunberg or suddenly waiting, going, oh, right, this is the moment. Are you going to answer the call? Right. Watching the people in the streets this this year, the inspiring amount of people who fill the streets and suddenly saying like, oh, history is knocking on your door. It's kind of like medium cool. Right. Yeah. It's coming. Yeah. You don't have a choice to, to you can't just put your head in the sand and say, oh, I don't care. The only question is going to be, who are you going to respond to that moment? And, right. and that's really inspiring in a way. Absolutely. Whose Streets, everybody. Check it out. It is, it's just, it's a great watch. It is available right now on Netflix. And that is going to lead us into my second film, which is one of my favorite films of all time, if not my absolute favorite film of all time. And that is Do the Right Thing by Spike Lee. If you haven't seen it, you're in for a treat. It's a film about, I guess it's a film about a community. Yeah. It's a melting pot of, of cultures and nationalities and experiences. And they are all quite literally melting <laughs> on the on the hottest day of the year in Brooklyn. Yeah. And 
racial tension and just tension in general rise up to a boiling point and they just rise up to this climax that is as dramatic and gripping and painful as any you'll ever see on screen as many times as I've seen this movie, which is a lot. That ending just still just grabs my heart and squeezes it. Like a lot of Spike's films, it's, you know, it touches on race and racism, but it, it's it's also about love and hate as displayed by Radio Raheem's Rings. <laughs> yeah, um, which is a great homage. Spike Lee is such a cineliterate filmmaker. Oh, yeah. You know, and such a great callback to The Night of the Hunter. He just tucks that in there because he's such a lover of cinema. And, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, check it out. It's an ensemble piece, and the ensemble's great. There's so many fantastic and legendary actors in oh, it. Oh, yeah. Ozzy Davis does Ozzie this incredible Davis. role. Ruby D does this great. You know who's really who's in it? I think it's one of his early roles, I think, is Giancarlo Esposito, who will later become famous as Gus Fring in Breaking right. Bad. Pre- Breaking <laughs> what I love is, is so one of the inciting incidents, which really sets off these racial tensions, is it centers around this pizza restaurant, and the character Giancarlo uh, Esposito's plays is, you know, he's a black man, and he's looking at the wall full of all these Italian-Americans, you know, Frank Sinatra and Al Pacino and all this stuff, and saying, you're in a black neighborhood, why don't you have any black people on the wall, right? And Dan Aiello, who's the pizza owner, responds very hostily. But, you know, in a way that Spike always humanizes all these characters, and, and you know, he's trying to say, hey, look, it's my shop, I'm going to put Italian-Americans there. He's proud of being an Italian-American. Well, the fascinating metatextuality of that is, as you can tell from the name, perhaps from the name Giancarlo Esposito, <laughs> he's, he's actually Italian. It's an Italian and Black actor playing the character, you know, of bugging out, criticizing, why don't you have any Black people up on the wall? And he's like, oh, well, I have Italians. There's a, this metatextual moment. I was watching it thinking, well, who's to say you can't have a black person on a wall honoring yeah. Italian-Americans? And in fact, pizza shop owners, if you want to have your kitschy <laughs> wall of famous Italians, you should put Giancarlo up there because, you know, everybody loves his character, you know, his performance in Breaking Bad. He's a national treasure and and certainly embodies kind of like the cool mystique of so many of these other characters on the wall. And he's a black man, too, right? Yeah. It, it really, it's like... It's such a fascinating moment, and I and I was sitting there thinking, was that a deliberate choice by Spike? Like that must, I mean, it's it's think, almost too good not to be. Yeah, right? it's too good not to be. Like uh, Spike's, there's very few accidents with that guy, man. Exactly. <laughs> and again, he's such a fine craftsman as well as a man of ideas. It's such a great moment. Such a great moment. The film it is remembered and and has endurance for its themes and and what it says and what it's about. But the incredible style almost gets kind of like left by the wayside because you're talking, you know, like when the movie ends, you're talking about the racism and what it's about. And you, it, it inspires all these conversations that should 100 percent happen. But stylistically, it is a treasure. Like if you are uh, an aspiring director or a director, I mean, just like I never get tired of watching this film because Every shot is just so much fun. It's just oh, it's so creative. I mean, even from so the creative. opening moment too, with that, like just the music hits you and like the dancing and it's mm-hmm. just like, and you're like, whoa, what is this? And it's like, it's like a punch to the face to really wake you up and get yeah. you into the, 
the movie and everything from like the like there's that scene I love with the Dutch angles and Radio Raheem comes and he's talking to the other group people on the stoop. Yeah. And or some of the like the tracking shots or the way he moves the camera around. It's it's got this energy to it. And you know, I think one of the interesting things is I feel like I remember reading some review or interview somewhere where it said, you know, Spike Lee, you know, had to deal with the the burden of being like the acclaimed black filmmaker, right? And mm-hmm. Whether that was actually, you know, there's also John Singleton and other people coming up around that time, but he was sort of the one that got a lot of the attention and I like the the way that he almost was trying to create, a, you know, he called a spikely joint, trying to like create a language of film that would be authentically black, that would pay homage to his forebears, because actually black cinema is as old as as cinema in this country. Totally. But it's also really interesting because now um, there's still not enough, but there's so many other wonderful black voices that we've now gotten to explore so much of what it means to make to be black cinema in so many different technical ways and so many different ways of ideas. Um, but at the time, this was probably the first black movie that a, I would I would venture to say a large portion of white America had seen at that point. Right? Yeah. That was the conversation. You're probably started. right, yeah. And, and even from down to the way he shoots the movie, the way he puts it in there, the music choices... The costume choices, the, the just the, the colors, the vividness of the colors, the way he uses language, you know, cinematic language, camera angles, everything. It's really trying to like just announce itself in, in such a new and fresh way. You can't help but watch it and feel like you're just watching a turning point in cinematic history. 100%. This was Spike's third feature film, but this was his breakout movie. And yeah. Watching you like, yep, this is, it's totally understandable why he became one of the biggest and most respected filmmakers after this. Still underrated, if you ask me, like he doesn't get enough credit as he deserves, but this is the movie that set him off. And the unfortunate reason of why I picked this film to embody 2020 is the ending. And if you haven't seen the movie again, once again, this is maybe a good time to pause it, (laughs) pause the podcast, go watch the movie, come back. But the ending where Radio Rahim is choked to death by the police. This film takes place in 1989. That scene was inspired by Michael Stewart, who was choked out by the police in 1983. That's what inspired Spike to make this film. 25 years later, we had Eric Gardner, who was choked out by the police in the same way that Radio Rahim is choked out by the police. And then, of course, in 2020, we had Mr. George Floyd choked out by the police. So that is why I picked this film. It's this film has endurance in a way that I wish it didn't have. It's so powerful because like on the one hand, there's an element where, you know, he humanizes all his characters wonderfully. And you sort of, you, you can feel for Danny Aiello and his character. Oh, He's yeah. built this pizzeria. But then you also sit there and go like, you're watching this guy get choked out and you're the white man. You're the aggrieved party. You can step in. Mm-hmm. What are you doing? Yeah. And you're, you're just watching it. Um, and, you know, I mean, maybe this is just because I'm an Asian American, but I was also really fascinated by the story of the shop across the street, the Korean yes. grocer shop. And also because I think because I, you know, I was in Los Angeles, I remember the L.A. riots being about this tension between, you know, a lot was made of the tension between the Koreans and the black community. And so, sorry, I sort of bring those expectations to it. But it was really noteworthy that I'm not saying the Korean shopkeeper comes in and, and, and you know, interrupt, you know, nobody, save, nobody is able to save Radio Rahim 
And and certainly the, the people with the most privilege who could do it don't do it. But there's a part where the police, you know, they arrest Buggin out and they're pulling him away. And the black community, folks are just pounding on the police car to protest it. And I suddenly noticed the Korean shopkeeper is one of those people pounding on the yeah. On the, on the car. And there's that moment when there looks like, oh, are they going to turn their anger? You know, they, they, spoiler alert, they, they really decimate Dan Aiello's pizzeria. And there's a moment where it looks like they're going to turn that anger onto the Korean store. And you know, there's been racial tensions that they've been documenting in the course of the film, which, by the way, takes place over the course of a day, mm-hmm. which is a really interesting stylistic choice. And then there's this fascinating moment where the Korean shopkeeper says, I'm black. Right. And it's right. like kind of a weird moment. She's like somebody's, you know, somebody actually points out to him, you're not actually black. Like that's you can't, you know, analogize your experience just, be, just because you do fit you're a person of color and you do face prejudice doesn't mean that your experience is equivalent to the to the black community. And yet you get the sense that a lot of the people on the street, the way Spike Lee depicts it is they're reacting and saying like, oh, OK, you know what? He's maybe not expressing it the most artfully. But I get the sense that he's sort of saying, I'm casting my lot with you guys. Yeah. I, I'm with you. I'm, I'm, and maybe some of that's a little self-interested. He wants to protect his store. But it's also, there's also a genuine there's some truth to it. Yeah. yeah, there's some truth to it. And I thought it was really interesting because when I was reading this article that said, you know, Koreatown really did not get hit by a lot of damage in 2020. And they said one of the interesting things that came out in the wake of the 1992 riots is that the Korean community and the Black community actually... There was efforts made to really build connection between that community. The, a lot of the Korean shops were writing Black Lives Matter on on their boarded up storefronts, which again, maybe some of this is a little self-serving. They're trying to protect themselves, but but maybe some of this is really coming from a genuine place of saying, like, look, this is a time when we feel threatened too. You know, people, you know, are going around saying the Chinese virus, there's violent, you know, it, it, hate crimes against Asian Americans had gone up by 600%. And maybe we need to get rid of this idea that if we just, quote unquote, work hard enough and and play by the rules, we can achieve whiteness, mm-hmm. right? That we're, we're maybe, no, we're never going to be seen as white. And indeed, that's not even what we should be doing. We shouldn't be trying to like leave behind other minority groups and, you know, and save our own skin. We should be trying to uplift everybody regardless of their race or, or you know, and make sure and that includes solidarity with the black community. So it's a really powerful moment with an unexpected resonance for me watching it. Man, oh man, do the right thing, everybody. If uh, you haven't seen it, absolutely 100%, check it out. If you have seen it, I've seen this movie probably about 30 times. It has never felt, it's sad to say, it has never felt more relevant for me than it has this year in 2020. It is worth a rewatch. It's a heavy film, but it's also, there's a lot of, laughs and and fun moments in it it's a masterpiece what can i say it's available to rent streaming uh wherever wherever you rent and you can also check it out at your local video store library there is also a fantastic criterion collection blu-ray available of that david this is too much fun but we're going to take a quick break everybody a break during the action you're also going to be able to check out sonia's movie minute during the break stay tuned for that and a word from our sponsor We'll be right back on Film Forward. We'd like to take a minute and give a very special thanks to our new sponsor, E-Minutes. E-Minutes is a company of entertainment lawyers who are dedicated to giving a platform to underrepresented voices by helping filmmakers form companies and other necessary legal entities. They're sponsoring a new award with LADFF called the Emerging Filmmaker Award and giving their services for free to the lucky winners. 
You can find out more about them by going to LADFF.com and clicking on the E-Minutes link. Hi, I'm Sonia, and this is my Movie Minute. Today, I want to talk about Promising Young Woman. It's a new film that'll be streaming starting this month, starring Carrie Mulligan. In it, she plays a brilliant ex-med student who goes through a horrible personal trauma, which I won't give away so that you can be surprised. And then she deals with it by kind of tormenting and enacting revenge on strange men that she meets in bars. From the trailer, I definitely thought this would be kind of an American psycho type movie. And it does have some elements of being very stylish and very whip smart, but it also is really personal. And I think the emotions that it leads you to feel are pretty profound. As a woman, I definitely identified with all the female characters and even with the male characters that we all want to believe that we're doing the right thing. But when you really look at your decisions and the way that violence towards women, either emotional and or physical violence, is perceived and accepted in our society, you realize how we're all kind of complicit and involved in accepting that violence. So I highly recommend the movie. I think that whether you love it or not, you'll have a strong reaction that will stay with you and make you think and maybe even make you act different in the future. So check it out and let us know what you think. And that was my minute. Thank you. Every week, I go to a club. I act like I'm too drunk to stand. And every week, a nice guy comes over to see if I'm okay. You okay? You are so pretty. I am a nice guy. Are you? And we're back here on Film Forward. I am here with Mr. David Chu. We are discussing films that embody 2020. Give me three films that embody 2020. It's been a blast so far. David has given us some great films. He has given us The Kingmaker and Whose Streets. I have recommended Medium Cool and Do the Right Thing. And now our last films that embody 2020. David, your final film, sir. Well, I feel like there's no way to talk about 2020 without talking about the pandemic. Which pandemic are you referring to? I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) The whole reason that we're all indoors right now. Yes. And you know, it's really interesting because I actually was really super obsessed with pandemics when I was a kid. I remember watching Outbreak as a kid and being really (laughs) fascinated by it. I remember reading The Hot Zone Mm -hmm. and uh, the Cobra event. Even many years later when Contagion came out, I was really fascinated by it. But when I really thought about what was a film that that dealt with a pandemic, but that really said that captured the emotional heart of what I wanted to say about this year, it was a film that probably most folks have never heard of called Embers. It's a small independent film about a pandemic that we presume it hits the earth. We don't really know. You know, it's not a film with a large like crawler explaining the sci-fi world. It's something you have to piece together, much like the characters do about their world, because what it is is a pandemic in which long-term memory has been wiped out. Yeah. So when you go to sleep, it's like your mind resets. And so you don't remember who you are, how you got here, 
even something as fundamental as the person you're in love with, you forget. And so you see people who are constantly trying to piece together who they are in an eternal present. One of the things, you know, there's the old joke, every day is Blur's Day about 2020. We do feel like it's time has really shifted on us. It both feels strange to think we're almost at the end of this year. And yet it also feels like February was maybe 20 years ago. Right. You know, right. like time has both passed super rapidly and also ever so slowly. And I feel constantly like I'm in this eternal present. And and so many of us are probably not really sure what the next year is going to hold and maybe even what the next stage of our lives is going to hold. You know, so many people's careers are on hold. Their businesses are on on the edge. The world they know is going to change in ways that are really fundamental and they're not really sure where this is going to end up. And I feel sort of like that moment of sort of sitting here in the eternal present and not really sure where it's all headed. And yet, the, the other reason I picked this is of the various characters it follows, all the characters I feel like are fighting for some, you know, despite the odds, they're still fighting for some sense of humanity and beauty mm-hmm. and human connection. And especially I, I think about this pair of, of lovers and you wonder, because again, you are with them. You don't know the history before the movie starts, before they wake up that morning, just like they don't know the history. But you get this indication that these lovers, as they start to realize and you start to realize, have they actually been in love for a while? And they're trying to like find a way to bind themselves together and say like, no, 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 you love each other. You're a couple. Yeah. Even if you're going to forget it. And then there's that fear of, oh my gosh, like we're going to lose all of that tomorrow. And yet we're going to fight to keep something there. There's so much of the sense of just people fighting to despite all of the odds and it's not a movie that by the way spoiler alert they cure the pandemic it's all okay in fact there's one character who is living underground with her father who wants to keep her sheltered right we can totally relate to that right like don't go out (laughs) right you know you live underground you won't get the, the plague but it's stifling and there's a part of her this may be this this may be this may be politically but sound like it's I'm arguing for a a belief that's different from my own. I, I would argue, please be safe for the vaccine is coming and it's coming very soon. So you don't have to go out and get yourself infected. But but she's sort of wrestling with maybe I want to go out and get myself infected and brave the world because it's better than than spending my whole life trapped in the same place. Right. Yeah. She'd been there for nine years. Nine years. It's not like it's not like look. It's a year. It's it's been a crazy year, but like we'll make it through. Please don't, please don't go out there and get <laughs> coronavirus. Um, full disclaimer. But it wrestles with these issues that I think we're feeling in, in such a human way. And the thing I kept being struck by was it sounds corny to say, but like when people say things like, oh, the triumph of the human spirit. But like, look, we as human beings, we've revealed some dark aspects of ourselves this year, and we've talked about some of them in this podcast, but We've also shown ways in which we fight to maintain connection. We fight to maintain humanity. We fight to maintain love. Yeah. And you know what? There's a miracle to having that Zoom Thanksgiving, let's say, and telling your mom you love her when maybe in previous years that was a little corny to say and, and saying, you know what? We're going to be connected even if we're going to fight in every way we can to be connected 
even when this virus is going to drive us apart. That's triumph. Yeah, that's an epic triumph. And so I kind of like what you were saying before about whose streets or do the right thing. You know, it leaves you with a weird sense of hope as bleak as it is. Yeah, I had also never heard of this film. You introduced me to it, and I'm glad you did because it was, you go through a lot of thoughts watching this. You know, this was made 2016 or something, right? We should mention. So this this was was made before the coronavirus. So uh, it'd be interesting also to hear from the filmmaker now. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah. This was a really fascinating watch. There's a moment early on in the film where one of the characters, there's a boy who doesn't talk. And he kind of happens upon this stranger who's, you know, trying to shelter him and keep him safe. And the boy looks at uh, the man's watch. He had never seen a watch before. And the man explain, tries to explain what a watch is and tries to explain what time is. Mm-hmm. And he just keeps saying, time is now. Time is now. And it's like, whoa. <laughs> All right, yeah. I'm in. <laughs> you, <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> you, <laughs> I can relate. <laughs> what yeah. is time? What is time anymore? You talked about that character who is being sheltered in a bunker with her father. And, you know, she's going through this routine every day. And I, I've kind of thought, you know, to myself over this pandemic, I'm like, well, we're not going to be here forever. But if we were, what would I do? You know, like, what would, would I just read book after book and watch movie after movie and write, you know, for myself? And you get a sense that that's what these people have done for nine years. You know, they, they are appreciators of art. You know, they've got these beautiful paintings in their place and they listen to music and the daughter learns the cello and all these sort of things. And, you know, for a while you would think like, well, that's a fulfilling life. But does security and safety triumph over curiosity of life? I thought that was a really interesting question that the filmmaker posed and one that she doesn't answer coldly, but it was a really There's some interesting questions that are brought up in this film that are fascinating to explore now. It's really interesting that like she raised these questions long before this moment. And like and and I wonder how different this film would have been. Claire Carre is the is the director's, I believe it's her first film. How would she have felt now, you know, in reaction to people saying, Well, yeah, I gotta go live my life. I can't be holed up. I mean, you know, it's interesting. It almost humanizes that perspective. Like it's 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 become so politicized, right? Wearing masks. Going out to parties, not going out to parties. And even beyond politics, there are people, no matter who you voted for, that are some are taking more or less risky behaviors. I'll confess to somebody who has not gone out a lot that it's easy to be a bit judgmental. But when I talk to people, especially people who live alone, this is really hard. Yeah. And you might say, oh, you have all this wonderful time to read all these books and watch all these movies and become experienced culture in a passive way, though. It's taking in. And what that storyline shows you is that that's not enough. Mm-hmm. That people need connection. Yeah. And I think it gives you some empathy. Look, like I said, part of me is like, ah, don't go home. Don't see your family members for, for Christmas or Thanksgiving or whatever. And I still think people should be responsible and stay safe. But it also makes you realize like, oh, we are so starved for human connection. Like, there's humanity to that. Some yeah. Some people are just really... They crave that presence, that human connection, and and it, it fills you with empathy for that moment. And there aren't, like you said, there aren't really easy answers. Like, I'm not really sure. Even before, I watched this before the pandemic. And even then, I wasn't sure if she should leave or not. Yeah, I was. I, I wasn't sure what I thought. Because you, know, you see the darkness outside, too. There's some, there's some bleak moments and some scary moments out there right. in the world. And I was fearful for her. I, I mm-hmm. almost felt like a father figure for her. I was like, ah. 
I yeah. I understood where she was coming from, but at the same time, I understood where the father was coming from. And yeah, like we said about do the right thing. Everybody is so human in this mm-hmm. film. Yeah, they're so human, and you understand everybody's perspective. And there's no quote unquote bad guy, right? Right. It's just oozes with human humanity and love for people. Yeah, it's such a um, incredible new voice in cinema. Yeah, and humanity in a way that I'm going to say it, it isn't really explored in movies the way that it's explored in this movie because the characters don't know who they are. So, you know, most movies that explore (laughs) humanity, you have these character arcs and people, you know, start one way and they change. These people don't know who they are. So (laughs) it's it's exploring humanity at its most animal. (laughs) Yeah, you know, there was something that I remember watching this movie and being really struck by, which is the whole idea of a conventional Hollywood film of a story is you start out as one person you go through an experience and you emerge changed that's the hero's journey right and this film it basically says up front no matter what you do today none of it is going to impact who you are tomorrow Mm -hmm. and there is this moment much actually ironically that's why i'm not sure i want this young woman to escape because like she feels stagnant but some of these other people feel a bit stagnant right like are they trapped in an internal presence does any of it matter and it's sort of arguing that like well it kind of matters now it matters what you do now even if it will be lost a moment later i hadn't looked at it that way but wow you're absolutely right it's really heady and and in some ways it's sort of comforting because like you know in the end we're all gonna die and you know the sun is gonna expand and wipe out the earth and all this you know what i mean at some point like like in the long run does anything really matter so all we really have is the short term in that in that sense by geologic time we're just a blip so all we really have is the moment we're in right now and the choices we make right now and and you know what maybe that'll lead to good and evil and maybe it'll have a lasting impact and maybe it won't but it's like it just has meaning in and of itself for just being this moment there's something almost kind of spiritual about it you know 100 percent. yeah man this is now right that's they say it in the movie. yeah this is now this is now ember it's amazing what it packs into 85 minutes of, it, of movie. yeah that's the other it's a very brisk runtime and it explores some really big dense ideas Embers, check it out. What is the filmmaker's name? Claire Carre. Claire Carre. And it is available to stream on Amazon Prime for free. Amazing. And my final film, which some may say, well, Nick, you're crazy. (laughs) Sonia certainly said that when I said, well, I think this is going to be my third movie. I wanted to finish the episode and the year of Film Forward with It's a Wonderful Life. Our listeners may be saying, Well, that's a crazy movie to connect to uh, 2020 because uh, for so many reasons, one of which this year feels anything but like a wonderful life. But I've thought about this movie a lot this year, and I'm going to go through the plot for those who haven't seen it. I know a lot of people have, but as I go through the plot, you may start to draw some connections to this year. It follows a man, George Bailey, played by the incomparable Jimmy Stewart. He's a man with big dreams of leaving his hometown of Bedford Falls, and he wants to do big things. He wants to see the world. He wants to change the world. He wants to make his millions. But one thing after another keeps George in his hometown. His father passing away, so he has to help run the business that his father built. His brother can't take the business. The Great Depression hits the country, hits his town. You know, he runs a business and loans business. So the depression has a huge effect on him. So he's stuck there. 
but he finds a beautiful wife. He has a beautiful family. The thing that's most persistent that keeps him in his hometown is his big heart, his empathy for his townspeople. And even with all the good he's done in the world and for his town, and he's got this beautiful family, George finds himself on the brink of bankruptcy and on the brink of, they don't say it, but he's like deep, deep depression. <laughs> like, I mean, he, they, they say he's going to, He's about to take his own life. Uh, he's he's know, about to kill himself, and that, that's yeah. not a spoiler because they say yeah. it like a minute the in the movie. movie. Yeah. <laughs> in his eyes, he's he's never achieved his dreams. He never saw the world. He's down, yeah. and on Christmas Eve, he's on the verge of killing himself. And an angel comes to show him that he indeed does have a wonderful life, and he's made everybody's life around him wonderful. And the reason I picked this movie was because I think. People may need a reminder of that this year. I'm not going to speak for everybody because I know I know people are going through a really tough time and I can't speak to everybody's experience. But as you mentioned, some people are are alone going through this pandemic. And I empathize with those people so much because it's got to be tough. But, you know, I think this film can be a reminder that they that those people are loved and that those people are needed. You know, there's a lot of things that happen in this movie that I think we went through and that we're going to be going through, unfortunately, going into next year and the year after, like an economic recession, I think, is on the horizon. I don't know how it can't be. So I think what this this film does is it reminds us of what's really important, kind of like Embers does, living life and loving each other and trying to be good and do the right thing. No pun intended on the new. Yeah, right. yeah. You're going to hit it all. Hit all. <laughs> But those things are what help us build a life that's worth living. Yeah. And I rewatched the movie this morning because I picked yeah. it without rewatching it. And I haven't seen it in a couple of years. And I was like, oh, I hope it works. And I watched it this morning and I, and I think it does. Yeah. My girlfriend and I watched it last night. And actually, it was really fascinating watching this in the context of 2020. One of the opening scenes is the pharmacist that he works for is really distraught because his son died. It's just his son died of the flu. And I think when I saw it as a kid, I was like, wow, I know the flu killed people. You suddenly now I'm like, oh, wait, this takes place in 1919. That's the Spanish flu. Yep. That's the pandemic. Yep. Uh, the movie is shockingly, you know, historical. Um, in all these really nuanced ways, I don't really remember. Like I said, it deals with the Depression. It deals with World War II. It deals with the Spanish flu. It deals with all of these elements. You know, even the moment, you know, talk about resonances with 2020. There's this moment where George is at the low point of his life and he comes home and like all of his four kids are just the most annoying they could possibly be. <laughs> right. and, and, and you can't help but think of all the pandemic parents totally. out there <laughs> try, struggling to keep their sanity and, and do their jobs while they're and deal with all these issues while their kids are just running amok all over the house. George yells at the teacher and I'm sure, you know, the <laughs> teachers are really super stressed and they're, you know, and suddenly you're like, oh yeah, this is like weirdly resonant. To, it to, all makes sense. Yeah. It all makes sense. Uh, but the other thing I think that's really fascinating is I, you know, I think everybody remembers those last 20 minutes, especially the ending, which is uplifting. But like the film is actually kind of dark in many ways. It really wrestles with this guy who had big dreams and and constantly has these areas where he's he's getting disappointed and, and his dreams are thwarted. And it's just he's struggling to deal with not really being in control of his own fate. 
And I think that's something I think a lot of millennials, I think, look, as a millennial, I think that's something that feels acutely powerful in a way that maybe was even more resonant than maybe people who were watching the film at the time that had gone through an incredible series of history as it documents. The 50s were a time of tremendous economic boom, not for everyone, it must be noted. And there was a sense of America was astride the world as this world power. And not to say it was, you know, it was also called the age of anxiety and there was fears about the Cold War. I'm not trying to look on it with rose-colored glasses, but there's a sense, especially among millennials, that like, oh man, we have had to deal with 9-11 and then the Great Recession and now the pandemic. And it's just like every time we start to get back on our feet, something comes there and just wallops us down, right? And like so many people I know who have dreams of businesses and careers It feels like they've been thwarted at every turn. Every time things start to look up, some other geopolitical world event comes in there and just smashes that hope. And I found myself relating to George in a way I certainly didn't as a kid, not understanding these struggles that he was facing, you know. I find myself really connecting with it and sitting there saying, you know, at the end of life, am I going to look back on all the dreams I had are they going to be achieved? I mean, it's this year, it feels like surviving is an accomplishment, right? Like, 100%. It really does. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And now we've lived through so many times where things have taken this dark turn. Are we going to look back on our lives and say, what did we accomplish? What did it all mean? There's a sense like now we're talking about the Kingmaker or Medium Cool. We're talking about the sense that our country itself is fraying. I mean, if it falls apart, Did we work toward anything? Did we get anything that we grew up thinking we were going to be promised? The dreams that our parents had, each generation would achieve more success than the previous one. Will that even happen? And the interesting thing is at the end of the film, it looks around and says, wait a minute, you did do something. You touched people's lives. You helped people on the journey in ways you can't even tell. Your life was meaningful. And it wasn't necessarily meaningful in the conventional metrics you measure. I think what's really notable is in the end, he doesn't become a gazillionaire. And right. you never get a cathartic scene where like he like shows up Mr. Potter and it's like, screw you, Mr. Potter. <laughs> I own this town now. You don't get right. any of that, right? Mr. Potter's just going to go on and be this awful millionaire or thousand. It's funny the number dollar amounts. There's a moment where <laughs> Jimmy Stewart goes, I'll get paid $20,000 a year. A year? <laughs> like, for a movie that's seen as like this very sweet, almost sappy ending, it's not. It doesn't give you any of those immediate rewards. It just sort of says... As Clarence the Angel says, was it no man is poor who has friends or something? I'm trying to remember yeah. that line. line. Yeah. But like, and somebody says, oh, you're the richest man in Bedford Falls. What he's got is he's got the people he's touched and, you know, the lives he's shaped, the friendships he's made, the family he's built. That's what he's got. He doesn't have the conventional metrics of success. He's not going to be Elon Musk or Donald Trump or any of these other things. He's not even as famous as his brother who wins the Congressional Medal of Honor, but he really is loved. He's loved. That is something to not take lightly. And I think that is something that we have learned this year. Yeah. Do not take that stuff lightly because we need it, man. We need it more than ever. And we will need it once we are able to get together again. You know, the ending hit me hard today because it was like the movie ends. All his friends are there and his family's there and they come to support him and they're all crammed into the house and they're all singing Christmas carols. And I'm like, you know, we're not going to get that. We're not going to get to be able to we're do that. We're not going to get that ending yeah. this year in 2020, as tough as it's been. Like, we can't do that. But at some point, we will be able to do that. And it's going to be a rocking party in 2021. That's something to look forward to. And that's something that can provide us some hope. 
it's something to keep our eye towards. And hopefully in the meantime, you know, maybe watching this movie will suffice as a placeholder for now because it did for me. It makes me think about the same story. It's sort of in, it's similar to Embers, actually, in a way of saying, look, we don't know what the future is going to hold and you can't control your own destiny. And George, he has no idea what curveballs life's going to throw him. But all he has, we were saying too, about like meeting the moment of history, all you have or who you're going to be when the moment comes. That's mm-hmm. all George has. But every time that moment comes, he reveals himself to be a man who cares about people, who has principles, who loves people. And sometimes he's rewarded for it. And sometimes he actually gets some hard breaks for doing the right thing. But the most important thing is he builds who he is by who he chooses to be when history comes to him, when the moment comes to him. And that's really what we have right now is we don't know where 2021 is going. We don't know where this country is going. We don't know what the future lies ahead. And there's some scary things, climate change, authoritarianism all on the horizon. But what we have is who we choose to be right now. How are we going to meet this moment? And that's a lot. That's what lives are built of, not conventional metrics of success, not raw power, It's really who we choose to be, you know, in the time that we're given, to quote Lord of the Rings. (laughs) David, I could not have said it better myself, and I think that is as good a place to end this podcast and end this year for Film Forward as any. Thank you for taking this journey with me. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. It was a lot of fun. I had no idea what we were getting ourselves into when I, like, came up with the the concept for this, this episode, but I'm glad that you were along for the journey with me and we had some fun. It was an unexpected surprise what that prompt meant to examine 2020 through film. Yeah. Thank you all for listening, not only to this episode of Film Forward, but to Film Forward all year. It's been the best year for the podcast. We've gotten a lot of new listeners and subscribers and a lot of show of support. And that's kept me going personally throughout this crazy year. So thank you all for listening. Thank you for showing your support. Thank you, David, for being here. And I'm sure we'll have you back next year because I like talking to you too much. Oh, yeah. Feeling is mutual. Awesome. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. And we will catch you in 2021, everybody. Our recording engineer and mixer is Anselm Kennedy. The podcast is produced by Anselm, Sonia Maru, and yours truly. Thanks for joining us on Film Forward, and you'll hear us next time.